when uh, Bon Jovi did that song in 2000, um, it was hugely popular. And um, it's interesting because it really is the, um, almost a theme song for the last uh, 20 years in, uh, in our society. Uh, but recently, if you want to book in the other uh, last uh, 13 years, then back just a few months ago, um, uh, a whole series of uh, commercials came out for this product. Y'all know what this is, right? Come on, it's Pepsi, you know? And uh, there was a lady who has uh, become famous. Her name is Beyonce. I don't know, Bon Jovi, Beyonce, I have to have a B or something. But uh, the thing, a Beyonce commercial uh, actually is the second ever worldwide camp, media campaign they had. And, and if you've seen it, you've probably seen it, her dancing on there and doing her thing. And, and it's the whole thing is, is about uh, embrace the past, but live for now. That's what the theme is, live for now. And it's kind of interesting because I don't know if um, Pepsi just simply embraces the culture that's around it, uh, but it seems like they could have saved themselves a lot of money uh, and time uh, because we already do this pretty well. Uh, we live for now as a culture. Um, we've kind of got this live for now mentality down pretty well. Uh, we live for the moment. We look at how we, you just look at how we handle our money as a, as a, as a, as a country uh, as an individuals, you know, we, we spend, 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 and think about, well, later, later. We don't want to think about later now. Uh, we'll buy it now. We'll worry about paying for it later. And now there's, there's, a, there's a word that's been around for a long time that explains this, this philosophy of live for now, and that's the term existentialism. Existentialism is a, a phrase that's been around for centuries that basically talks about the mindset of living for now. You don't worry about what happens later. You don't worry about the consequences of, of all the stuff. You just live for the moment. And I understand why Pepsi doesn't use the term existentialism. And, you know, Pepsi brought to you by existentialism really is not too marketable. But, uh, you know, Beyonce is probably a much more marketable product for them uh, nationally. But uh, if you look back historically, you'll find out that existentialism is something that's, le that's led to the fall and collapse of Western culture as we know it. Um, uh, we live for now is, is not really serving us too well as a culture and as, as people. Uh, but there's something about within us that we like this approach to life. Uh, we want to talk about now, now, and we'll worry about later, later, right? That's just the way it is. We don't, we don't really want to deal with later, now. Uh, but the Scripture tells us, that's the thing we're going to be looking about in this series. Scripture tells us that the, the most important thing that we can think about now is later. It goes uh, uh, just totally against what our culture talks about. But for mo many of us, though, it's kind of like when you go to a movie. How many of you go to a movie and you and you have already read the book? You've ever been, done that? You know what's going to happen at the end of the end of the. I do that all the time. I read books like crazy, and so I'm usually disappointed at movies that are written uh, off of good books because it's just not as good. But the issue is, is you already know what's going to happen at the end. It kind of spoils it, right? Well, you know, most of us in, in life don't want to have that spool, but the one thing we, we'd like to know, we'd like to be certain about, the one thing that we like to really have a, have a handle on in regards to later is what happens when we die. What happens when we die? We want to know. And the Bible talks about this a lot. It says in a, in a real sense we have a natural interest in this. It says it in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. It says this, God has placed eternity or planted eternity in the hearts of men. In other words, anybody who's ever lived anywhere has this natural desire to want to know what's going to happen after we die. 
What happens when we, we die? Where do we go? How long does it take? Uh, uh, what are we going to do when we get there? Is hell for real or is it just metaphorical? Is heaven for real? What's, what's it look like? Uh, what are we going to do in heaven? All these are questions that we constantly have in our, in our minds, but so often we don't want to talk about them. Well, the Bible has a lot of things to say about it, but also, interestingly enough, in our current culture, in the last few years, there's been a lot of books that have come out about this afterlife thing, especially books that deal with um, uh, kind of after uh, our near-death experiences. Uh, they've become, many of them, bestsellers. For instance, in 2010, there was a book called Heaven is for Real. Uh, it was published, and it's, it's actually a book that's based upon the experiences of a three-year-old who uh, had a near-death experience, died, was brought back, resuscitated, and told his parents about it, and they wrote this book. Uh, the interesting thing about this book, based on the life experiences, the near-death experiences of a three-year-old, is it was actually number one on the New York Times bestseller list for 44 weeks in a row. Can you believe that? That is unreal. That is unreal that people are that interested in listening to what a little boy named Colton talks about when he, when he died and came back and all the stuff that he had going on with that. That was, that was what the book was about. And then there's some other books that have been out, many other books that have been out, but some weren't quite as uplifting as that book um, about that. But one of them in 2008 was called Beyond Death's Door, and it was written by a cardiologist named uh, Maurice Rawlings. And he tells about how some of his patients' experiences with the afterlife, and it was interesting because he would interview them right after the experience. Uh, they had no time to really process it, so he'd interview them. And over the years, he wrote this, he pulled together this information after he resuscitated many of his patients. And his patients, uh, uh, he particularly one came to mind, he said one of the patients... Uh, kept fading in and out, and then he writes that when he came to, the patient came to, and he got resuscitated, this patient yelled, I'm in hell. And he had a sheer look of terror on his face, and he, and he yelled, don't stop, don't you understand, each time you quit, I go back, don't let me go back. And the story is written as one of the many stories in this book. But we have all these stories, and, and they can be interesting stories, and they can be inspiring stories, but we have to understand their subjective experiences. And there's a lot of possible factors to explain a lot of the things that are there, and oftentimes they contradict each other. Oftentimes they, they contradict Scripture. And so while we might read them and be inspired by them or are intrigued by them, we don't want to confuse where we find our answers for such a uh, uh, subject as the afterlife because we want our source, our authority, to be Scripture. So what I want to do this week and the next three weeks following this is I want to look at this from, from Scripture. What does Scripture have to say about you're dead, now what? Uh, what happens after we did? What the Scripture has a lot to say about it. So I want to kind of just talk about a couple of things this morning. It's kind of a platform for us to be talking about this over the next uh, three or four weeks. The first thing that Scripture tells us very clearly that teaches us what will happen is that when you die, your spirit will separate from your body. When you die, your spirit will separate from your body. Um, in other words, your body will die, but you will continue to live. Now, there are people around who would say this is not true. They're called naturalists. And naturalists, what naturalists believe, that we are just physical beings and that there is not a spirit and a soul. Naturalists would say that this is all there is. There is no heaven. There is no hell. There is no God. They would say that. And if that's your approach to life, then existentialism makes total sense. So have a, have a Pepsi, grab a Pepsi, and live for now. You know, that is, that's existentialism. Uh, it makes sense, and naturalists believe that. It makes sense if that's all there is. But the Bible says that's not true. 
The Bible says that we are not just physical beings. The Bible says that we are spirit and soul. Interestingly enough, I think we all innately know this. Because if you study cultures all around the world, cultures of every type, you will see elements of teachings in every culture that we are more than just physical beings, that we are more than just beings that are, that are here uh, now and, 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 and nothing else. Uh, we all understand this to some degree. Um, if you've ever had any type of surgery and had anything removed, spleen, liver, uh, lung, how about tonsils? Okay, let's just make it simple. You know, uh, I had my tonsils out when I was six years old, okay? Um, if you have anything, or if you want to go more extreme, and if you've had to have a limb amputated or something like that, when that happened, does that person cease to exist? Or they keep going on? Part of their body's not there anymore. The physical part is not there. See, we understand that. And matter of fact, you were not the person you were 10 years ago. Did you know that? There is not one cell in your body from science that's, the, that's still there from 10 years ago because every 7 to 10 years our body's constantly replacing all the cells. And science will tell us that it takes 7 to 10 years but not one cell in your body that was there 10 years ago is there now. You're not you. And, that, and somebody asked me, well, you know, why do we have to replace them one to one? Can't they kind of reduce the numbers so I won't be quite as big? And I'm going to, you know, you have to take that up somewhere with somebody else. I don't know. But the issue is, the issue is, is we all know that, uh, that, we, that the physical body is not all there is. Now, the Bible talks about this uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, it, it says, it talks about the body as a temporary dwelling. Paul talks about this. He says this. Uh, in, your, in your notes, in your outline, there's uh, the whole scripture, but part of it, verses 6 through 8, says this. We are always confident, and we know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And in that passage of scripture, the verses, a couple of verses before and after it as well, when you look at the whole picture, it says our souls on this side of heaven are our temporary housing. Matter of fact, um, he says this physical body, uh, our, our body dies, our soul's going to be with God. But Paul uses this metaphor to help us with this perspective of understanding it. And he talks about the body as a tent. As a tent, you know, like camping, a tent. I mean, how many of you, now don't, you can raise your hands for this, okay. This is nothing bad. Uh, how many of you, at some time in your life, maybe you do it now, or you did it at one time, you've, you've done a vacation and you've gone camping? Anybody here? You like to do that? Okay. Uh, somebody put your hands down real quickly when I said you like to do that. Okay. Uh, you know, th do, do those of you who went camping and live in a tent, uh, do y'all know about hotels? <laughs> somebody has told you about those, how those work, right? Yeah? Yeah? Okay. My experience with camping is I'm not a big fan. I'm not a big fan because for me, if I'm going on vacation, let me do it this way. Let me define it. Vacation. Here's the definition of vacation. Vacation is defined as a period of time devoted to pleasure, rest, and relaxation. Is that true? That's a good definition. Okay, here's my definition of camping. Camping is defined as a period of time devoted to discomfort, restlessness, and frustration. <laughs> I made that up. But it doesn't mean it's not true. That's true in my experience because I can tell you that that's how I think of camping. Because the experiences I had growing up, I hadn't camped in a long, long time, but the experiences I had growing up in camping, sleeping in a tent, I remember that. 
I remember as a kid, you know, set up the tent, you pull out the bag, the tent smell, you know, I don't care how good you air out the tent, you stick it in a canvas in a bag and you leave it in there for a while, it starts smelling, what, moldy and, you know, whatever. And if you put it in there damp, oh, it's horrible. It's just nasty smelling, and it smells moldy. And you set it up, and, you know, and some of the parts aren't working right. It always seemed to be that way. All the parts weren't there. And then it sags in the middle, you know, after it's there, and you're, you know, you're trying to do your best to, you know, that's just the way it is. Well, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that our physical bodies are like, like a tent. He said they start to sag in the middle. They, um, certain parts don't work the way they used to. They may smell a little moldy as time goes on. You get the idea, right? Um, he says this is just temporary housing for our souls. Our souls live forever. The body is a tent. And he, then he says this. I love this in the context of what we've been talking about here. He says in 2 Corinthians 5, 4, he says, For while we were in this tent, our body, we groan and are burdened. And I love to take this verse out of context because that's just like camping to me. You know, when I'm camping, when I'm, when I'm in, in the tent, I groan and I'm burdened. I'm going like, oh my gosh, when is this going to be over? The last time I ever camped, I can't count Africa two years ago because that was just, that's different. Uh, but the, the last time I camped in a tent here in America was when my son was about uh, eight years old. And uh, we went, he's 25 now, by the way, okay? So we went out, it was a Cub Scout thing, and we went out in this tent, and we were out in the woods, and it was freezing, and he had to croup, and he started hacking and coughing. In the middle of the night, we had to get up and leave and go home, and I was so thankful. Not for his croup, but that we got out of the tent because it was freezing in there, and I was going like, this is miserable. Who wants to do this? But the thing is, is that, you know, that's just, that's just the way. So, you know, while we're in the tent, we groan in our burden, uh, and... The thing about it is, is that what, what he's saying is, he said, this is, the idea is that Paul's saying this, this is temporary. This, this body that we have, it's not meant to be here forever. Paul says, yeah, the, that's the perspective we have about our physical bodies. They're temporary tents. So the first point is this. He said, you know, the first point is that um, uh, when we die, our souls will separate from our bodies. The second point the Bible makes is this, is that when you die, you'll know your eternal destiny. When you die, you'll know your eternal destiny. Some of us uh, in this world have some beliefs that we're, we've picked up along the way from culture um, about what happens when we die. And many of these beliefs are not rooted in Scripture. And sometimes we, we, we just believe them. People believe them. Uh, and we'll talk more about these in the next few weeks as we touch base on next week on hell, next, the following week on heaven, and finally wrap some stuff together the, the last week. But uh, the first belief that's very hugely popular in our culture, culture today is, is the belief of universalism. Universalism. Universalism is the idea that everybody, everybody is going to heaven. You know? Everybody. It's, and it's a, it's a, I can understand why that belief is so popular. Because it sounds so good, you know, that uh, uh, we like it. And in some ways, uniquely in history, our culture, the Western culture that we live in, we determine what we think is true based on what we like. Um, this really marks us as a, uh, this culture in this time, in this place, we will determine what we believe based on what feels right to us. And if we like it, and if I uh, emotionally accept it and agree with it, then it must be true. That's what I believe. And I don't worry about what other things may say. I, I, I go with what feels true to me. I don't like, and if I don't like it, if it doesn't emotionally feel right to me, it couldn't be true. And truth has become very subjective in our culture. And 
But that's not the way the universe works. Truth is true whether we like it or not. And as we'll discover next week as we talk about hell, there's some things that the Bible talks about that we really don't like. We really don't. I don't like them. I'm not looking forward to next week's teaching. I'm looking forward to looking at God's Word, yes, but I'm not looking forward to the topic because it's a tough topic. The Bible talks a lot about things that we really don't like, and we will have a tendency to say, well, if I don't like it, I don't think it's true. But that's not how truth is determined. There's a second um, doctrine or false teaching that's out there that people believe in as well. It's called annihilation or annihilationism. And it's the idea that when people who are not Christians, uh, who don't know Jesus, die, uh, they, they, these are people who don't want to believe there's the hell. And so they simply say, well, when, if you're not a Christian, when you die, you're annihilated. There's nothing left of you. You cease to exist. Or you go to hell briefly, there's another realm of this, and then you cease to exist. That's the kind of idea of annihilationism. And it's prevalent in our culture as well. Because many people just don't want to... There's the religious systems based upon that belief as well. It directly contradicts Scripture because we, and we'll see this next week very clearly where Jesus talks about the everlasting reward and everlasting punishment for those who follow Christ or don't follow Christ. He says in 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 8 and 9, he says, He will punish those talking about God, who do not know God and those and who do not obey the gospel or our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And so this is another, this is another thing that's very clear in Scripture. This is not one of those gray areas. It's, it's, it's a very clear thing that, uh, uh, that our, our bodies, number one, uh, separate from our soul. And number two, number two, that in a real sense, uh, we'll know our destiny, our eternal destiny when we die. A third false teaching that's been around for actually several centuries now, uh, and it's become popular in certain religious circles, uh, is, the, is the concept of purgatory. Purgatory um, is the belief that when, when people die, they suffer for a while in kind of a hellish timeout. And, uh, and, when, and once they pay for their sins, once they are punished for their sins, and they don't know how long that may be, six days, six weeks, 60 years, who knows? Uh, but once they're punished for their sins, then they get to go to heaven. But this idea didn't come about, didn't, didn't even raise up until, or become official until 1439 at a church council called the Council of Florence. It's not found in Scripture. Matter of fact, uh, if I could just read from the New Catholic Encyclopedia that says this, and this is I quote, it says, the doctrine of purgatory is not explicitly stated in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. It's been handed down as a tradition, but we don't read it in the Bible. In fact, I would go as far as to say that it really contradicts what we read in the Bible. Not just, not in the Bible, it contradicts because if purgatory is true, and if, then what we are told about the death and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ in Scripture can't be true. Because in Scripture, what it says, it says, we're told that Jesus died once for all. We're told that his sacrifice has been made, has made a way for our sins to be forgiven and for us to receive the free gift of eternal life through faith in him. But if purgatory is true, then it's like God is double charging us. What he's doing is that Jesus paid for your, paid for your sins, but you've got to pay too. 
He paid for your sins, but now you're going to pay for your sins yourself. And that's not what we read in Scripture. In fact, when Jesus died on the cross, one of the last things he says is, it is finished. And it's more accurately translated, it is completed. It means the work has been done. The balance is zero now. It's been taken care of. So these are some of the teachings that are out there that have kind of crept in and become popular in recent years in religious and secular uh, part of our culture. So I want to talk with you today about the kind of sequence of events that I believe you could expect when you die based upon Scripture. Okay? Based upon Scripture. And Scripture alone. Now, I understand this. Disclaimer. There's many things in Scripture that are black and white, and I'm going to try to talk about the black and white things. There's some things in Scripture that are, that are still fuzzy about some of these things. They're not totally clear. And, and there's some differences of interpretations on some of these things. But honestly, the things that we do know, I think, are very clear in Scripture. So my, when, when you die, as I understand Scripture, there are two possible paths that can be taken. Only two. Number one, the first path is this. It's for someone who has not, has not received God's free gift of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches us, as we just talked about, that when we die, our bodies die, our souls are made to live forever. So when a person who doesn't know Jesus, when they die, their souls, the Bible would teach, goes to a place referred to in Scripture in Luke 16 and other locations called Hades. Hades some people translate it as hell, but Hades actually seems to be more in Scripture. It doesn't seem to be exactly the same place as we read about in Revelation 20, which we'll look at next week. It, it's, it seems to be a, a, a place, um, it's certainly hellish, and it's a place of torment and agony, of suffering, of pain, of regret. It's a place that Scripture refers to as the outside, meaning that, in other words, it's a place where God is not. In any place where God is not, where God has been removed from the circumstances and from the environment, becomes hell as defined in Scripture. And so for the person who does not know Christ, the place they go to after they die, their, their soul goes to after they die, is a place called Hades, this kind of hellish um, kind of waiting station for the judgment. And then what happens is, the Bible says, they receive, at the judgment, they receive a physical body. And, and then, in fact, the Bible talks about what happens next uh, when they go before God in judgment. In Revelation 20, it says, says this, The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and the death, and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades was, were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life, that's the persons who have accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, were thrown into the lake of fire. Next week we're going to talk more about this, just not just the reality of hell, but what, and not just what does the Bible say about it, but I want us to address a little bit about how we feel about it. Because how do we align what we understand to be true about God and what the Bible teaches is true of hell. So we'll dig into it a little bit more next week on Father's Day. Isn't it a great day to do it, you know? Didn't work, plan it that way, just the way it worked out. Okay. So that's the first path, the person who was without Christ. The second path, though, the other path we read about in Scripture is for those who have accepted God's gift of eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. The person who has accepted Christ. And the Bible teaches that for Christians, when we die, we go to be directly with God. 
In 2 Corinthians 5, which we looked at already a while ago, Paul says that he prefers to be away from the body, away from the physical part, so that he could be at home or could be present with the Lord. He talks about that moving from here, the physical body, to the presence of the Lord. And then Jesus uh, says to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise, today, not tomorrow, not the next week. He said, today you'll be with me there. Then when Jesus returns, we will see, the Bible says that we will receive a new physical, resurrected, glorified body for the new heaven and the new earth. Now, an example of this will be in Jesus' own death himself on the cross. Remember when he died upon the cross, one of his la- one, another part of his last words, he said to God is this, God, into your hands I commend my spirit. His spirit went to be with God. His body is, uh, body is buried in a, in a tomb. And three days later, we see in this story, uh, in Scripture, he receives a new resurrected physical body, a body that walks with and talks with and eats with his disciples. It's a real body. It's a new physical body, but it's a resurrected body. And one day, that will be true for us. Unless Christ comes first, this will be true for every one of us. We will die. Let me tell you, many sermon series... The one on marriage recently, if you weren't married, you might not have thought this fits. But I'll tell you this, I can guarantee you, this sermon series fits 100% of everybody. Because the one thing I can tell you without a doubt, that death is 100% certainty, right? Pastor, you're so morbid. No, I'm realistic. <laughs> the thing is, is that, you know, it says this, and one day, that will be true for you, we'll die, and and one day, then unless Christ returns, our spirit goes to be with God, our, our body is buried, and then when Jesus returns, we receive a new body, a new physical resurrected body, and in a couple of weeks we'll talk about what heaven looks like, and we'll address a little bit more of what the new heaven and the new earth and our new bodies will be like. But some people have this idea that when you die, and in heaven will be like these spirit beings, these ethereal spirit beings, kind of float around, play harps. You've heard that before, right? You know? I just want to take one verse and just blow that out of the water because I don't even think it takes one. Uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 3, he says this. He says, For we will not be spirits without bodies, but we will put on new heavenly bodies. Can it be any clearer than that? You know, you will not be playing a harp, floating around on a cloud in heaven. Now, this, this time before Christ comes, I don't know what the spirit thing's going to do. Maybe that's what it's talking about. But the is, issue is, it says eventually, for most of eternity, we will be, uh, have some kind of a heavenly body, whatever that means. Now, Joni Erickson, Johnny Erickson Tata, who spent, most, who spent the majority of her life as a paraplegic in a wheelchair, writes about the new body, and she says this, one day there will be no more bulging middles or balding tops, no more varicose veins or crow's feet, no more cellulite or support hose. That day is coming. And knowing where she's been, I also would say, sitting there in the wheelchair, I'd also say, add some things. No more wheelchairs, no more walkers, no more cataracts, no more cancer, no more asthma, no more arthritis, no more diabetes, no more death. We will have bodies, as God intended originally at creation for them to be, free from the contamination of sin. So when we die, we find our souls separated from our bodies, but we are with God. So that means we will know what immediately what our eternal destiny is. You can know what your eternal destiny is. We will know that heaven is our home. That's great news, right? But there's one part of Scripture that still confounds me. And that one part of Scripture says this, okay, we'll know if the minute you die, you'll know you'll be, your spirit will be with God if you're a believer and you'll be there. But it says this in 2 Corinthians 5.10. 
For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one of us may receive what is due him for the things done while in the tent, the body, whether good or bad. It says that even though we will be, that we will be with God and know that we're going to be in heaven forever, we still have to go through this judgment thing. What does that mean? When I first read that, I'm going like, that's not going to be fun. Right? I mean, any of you think it's going to be fun, you're sick. Because who wants to have somebody to stand before? And God knows everything. He doesn't know, he knows every thought we, we, we think. He knows everything we've done, good or bad. He knows all the things, right? That's the God I know. He knows all those things. So how could this be good? That's what I'm asking. And this is a, I believe God is a righteous and good God. But see, you have to look at all of Scripture. I wish there was a book in the Bible that just talked about this and laid it all out, but it's not. So we've got to pull stuff together. You know, even though it says that, that there's going to be this judgment time, it says in Romans 8, 1 also that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So how do you balance the two? How do you deal with those things? And I was thinking about that, and I'm going like, you know, Maybe it's going to be different then. So that day, I think, is not a day that's going to focus on the condemnation. That judgment time is not going to focus on the condemnation. From, but it's going to focus, for Christians, on God's grace. On God's grace. So there's two things I think is going to happen at judgment for the believer. First, we will have that day so that God's grace can be revealed. So God's grace can be revealed. Now, I'm not exactly sure how that will look. This is the gray area, okay? I'm not sure how that will look. But since the Bible says, I, you know, there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ, maybe when he opens the book with all the stuff in it, and it, and it says your sins have been washed away, and it's far as, far as the east is from the west, maybe the pages will be blank. That, maybe that would be cool. You know, God opens it up, and you know all the stuff you've done. You know, even if you have some memory, you have, you know, you remember all the stuff you've done, you're going like, oh, I did some stuff. I don't want it to be in the book. But the thing is, is that maybe the, maybe the book is going to be empty. Maybe, maybe those pages are blank. Maybe not. Maybe not because we read about in Scripture a number of times that when we stand before God, there is going to be an account of all the sins that we've ever committed. And that will not be good, at least from our perspective right now. But I began to ask myself, how can, okay, if, if it's about God's grace being revealed, how does that work then? And then maybe it works this way. Imagine it this way. Different scenario. Imagine, and this is not hard to imagine, you're 16 years old. And in the mail, the great, uh, great uh, uh, company sends you a, a, a Visa card. You know, a credit card. And they don't tell you anything about it because, and you've never used one of these things before. You know, so you're going like, wow, this is cool. I can use it for spending. So you start spending on it. You start using it. And you're thinking, you know, I know I'm going to get a bill for this, so, you know, I better pay it pretty soon. But a month passes, you don't get a bill. Two months passes, you don't get a bill. A year passes, you don't get a bill. Five years pass. You keep spending on this credit card. You don't have any kind of bill whatsoever. None. And you're going like, I know this can't last forever. And you're, you're, you're kind of like, what am I going to do? And then one day the shoe drops. And, and the thing is, your dad calls you. And your dad calls you and he says, he says, hey, a bill collector for the credit card company came by the house today and they say you have this huge bill that hasn't been paid. And all of a sudden you have this overwhelming sense of fear and of dread. And you've been dreading this moment for a long time. The moment has finally come. But then the next words out of your dad's mouth is this. Look, 
It cost me everything I owe, but I went ahead and paid the bill for you. It cost me everything, but I've, I've gone ahead and paid the bill. I've, I've gone ahead and, and paid for your credit card bill. What would you feel at that point? Would you feel relief? Sure. Would you be grateful for the grace that your father had shown you, even though you didn't deserve it? Probably. Maybe it's going to look like that. I don't know. Maybe, or maybe even better, maybe your father calls you on the phone. He says, hey, I got this credit card bill. Would you come over? We need to talk about it. And you walk in there on the coffee table is this, this document that looks like an encyclopedia. And it's your credit card bill. And he begins to go through it page by page. And he goes, you know, on this date you bought this. And on this date you bought this, but I paid for it. On this day you bought this, but I paid for it. On this, and, you just go through, and, and after a while, you get, it's not so much about what you've done, but about what he has done for you. Maybe that's how God's grace is. I just don't know. I'm just trying to paint a picture of what it would look like and the reason we have to go through the judgment. Maybe it'll be like that. Whatever the case, we know that there'll be no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We'll know it'll be a time for God's grace to be revealed where all the creation will worship the God who saved us from the sins. It'll be through Jesus Christ, though. So that's the first thing. You know, God's grace will be revealed for the believer. Another thing, though, another reason for the judgment for the believer is this. And secondly, this is something that I sometimes don't want to talk about because you can take it so wrongly. But is the second reason is so that our rewards can be unveiled. Our rewards can be unveiled. It'll be an opportunity for God to reward us. Because we, when we hear the word judge, uh, we always think of punishment and condemnation, but there's another context to the word judge. He's, always, he's also someone who hands out the ribbons, right? Who gives the rewards, who hands out the trophies, who, who does that as well. Now, focus just a minute here. I want you to be very careful. This is this, about what I'm going to say next. It's hugely important. Hugely important. When I say rewards, I don't mean salvation. The Bible doesn't say, the Bible says we are not saved by our works. We're saved through the work of Christ. The Bible says in Ephesians, it says, we are saved by grace through faith in Christ Jesus, not of our own works so that no one could boast. That's what the Bible says. But we do read in Scripture about the fact that in heaven, and if you're a believer, you've already been saved, right? You already know that. By God's grace through Jesus Christ. But in heaven it says we'll be rewarded for what we have done in this life. Now we don't want to talk about that sometimes as a church because we're so afraid that people will get confused and they'll start to think, well, the gospel is this. You know, if I do enough good stuff over here and, and it outweighs the bad stuff over here, I can get to heaven. No! If you're not awake now, you are. Because the issue is this, you will never do enough good stuff to be right with God. But the Bible says, the Bible says it doesn't matter how much good stuff you do, it's through faith in Christ, Jesus Christ that you get to heaven. But the Bible does talk about a, lot of our, a lot about our works and our righteousness and holiness, and there will be a day where all these things will be rewarded. Paul even addresses this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It's one of the places it's addressed. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he describes 
this in this way. He uses this analogy. He says that we are builders, and we're all building a house. Each one of us is building our own house. And someday there's going to be a home inspection. Okay? And when there's this home inspection, what's going to happen? It's going to be judged about how well we built the house. And the house is built upon the things we've done upon this earth. And this is what he says in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 14 and 15. If what has been built survives, meaning it stands up to the test, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. He says that one day our lives, this house that's built, we've built, and the house we've built is the stuff we do upon this earth, not so we can get salvation, because, but we do it out of our love and our, our, our care for, for Jesus Christ and for God. The things that we've done there, he says, he said, we'll be rewarded. Now, what does that mean? I don't know. I don't have a clue what that means. I mean, you could talk about jewels and crowns and all kind of stuff, you know, and go, don't ask me later. I don't know. I won't know tomorrow. I won't know next week. I don't know because it's not real clear in Scripture. That's a gray area. But it does say we'll be rewarded in some way, and whatever that way means, I don't know. See, the, prob the primary problem with this live-for-now approach is that now is such a brief moment of time and eternity, right? We don't think so. You know, if you're 20 years old, you think, some, you know, you think that 80 is ancient. You 20-year-olds, don't you think that? Don't y'all think that? 20 years old is ancient. I've heard you talk, you know. I listen. My ears still work. <laughs> but it's not. We sing an old hymn. It's, it's called Amazing Grace. And in there, one of the, some of the words are this. If you don't know the song, but it's, some of the words are this. When we've been there 10,000 years, what's the next line? It's, it's, we, we've only just begun. Okay? In light of eternity, 10,000 years seems like a long time. Okay? Eternity. Okay, let's expand that. Let's say it's only just begun. Let's say 100,000 years. Okay? If you live to be 80 years old, what percentage... Of 100,000 years is 80. Eight one hundred thousandths of 1%. Okay? That's easy math. I, I even know that, and I'm not a math major. Okay? The issue. It's a really small, it's kind of like this. I was at somebody's house recently, uh, not too long ago, and they had one of these things on the shelf. You ever seen these? You know what these things are? This is an Airwick. What's it called? Airwick something. Fresh-o-matic. It's so cool. And I walked by there, and it was sitting on a shelf about this high. <laughs> and as I walked by, inside there's this canister of stuff, you know? And as I walked by, it, 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 it did this. <laughs> and I'm going, that was freaky. <laughs> I mean, right when I walked by, it went, <laughs> You know, and I was dying, you know, I was going like, you know, it smelled pretty good, but it's still, still stuff, you know, right in your face. I think they said it at 6'3", you know, about perfect height. Okay, but the thing is, the thing is, Paul, uh, you know, in Scripture, James talks about our life, this, this little bit of time we have. In this way, he says, what's your life? You're a mist, mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. That's your life. Your life here on earth, in this tent... If it's 80 years, 20 years, whatever it is, that's your life. 
That's all it is in light of eternity. And we're thinking, wow, that's not much, is it? You're right, it's not much. But, we, but it's all we have. But it's all we have. And James said that's what our life looks like. It's just, just, just like that. Just a mist. Just a little bit. So what do we do with that little bit? See what the Bible says, and this is what we're going to talk about more in this series. We cannot live this life in a, with a mentality. I don't care what Beyonce says and Pepsi. I don't say, care what Bon Jovi says. It's, it's not my Yeah, it's just your life, but you, but you have only so much time. And we, have to, can't, we can't just go around living for today. We have to live in light of eternity. Because what we do with that determines everything else. Who do we trust? Who do we follow? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your grace that saves us. We are lost without it. And I just pray today, God, that in the next few moments, you would make us, just make us aware that you would awaken us from this sleep that we can be in when we're so caught up in the temporary trappings of this world that we forget about what really matters. And Lord, would you just overwhelm us with the truth that you have overcome death. You have overcome sin by your blood and that it is through you that our sins can be forgiven and that we can live forever with you in heaven. God, this morning there's someone here who's not followed you as Lord and Savior, not said yes to you, who simply has said, well, I'm going to try to, you know, be all right with God and myself, that they would understand that Scripture just says it so clearly that it is only through faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior that we, we can be with you in heaven for eternity, but also as we live this life here upon this earth, God, we can live life in a way that would just honor and please you and, and be the very best that we could possibly be, that you want us to be. I pray, God, that, that if there's someone here this morning who's never taken that step, that you would just work in their lives, God, that this week, sometime, that they would, maybe today, even the day, would talk with someone about taking the step or, or pray the simple prayer, God, I admit that I'm a sinner and I want to turn my life to you. I want to make you the director and Lord of my life. Thank you, God, for saving me. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and for what he did. God, and I want to just repent of my sin, turn to you, and ask you into my life. And when we do that, God, when we take that step, and we begin to follow you, God, we don't have to worry about later. We start thinking about later because we think about living for you, God. Thank you so much, God, for what you've done in our lives, the hope that you give us. And as we discover what your word has to say about some tough subjects, about hell and about heaven and about living our life in light of eternity, we would pray that you would just not only help us to inform us, but you would motivate us, God, to, to uh, act upon your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've never taken the step of asking Christ into your life, myself or one of our staff or some of our volunteers would love to talk with you. Uh, you can simply go by the Welcome Center, uh, fill out a card there or to see one of us as you see us uh, each week. 
uh, give the church an office a call. We'd love to sit down with you and talk to you about next steps that you may need to take in your life as well. I hope that you'll be encouraged during this series. I don't see it as something being uh, scary. I see it as something being freeing of uh, knowing the truth. Because the Bible says uh, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And so we just encourage you to be here each week of the series as we continue to look at God's word about your dad now what?